climate crisis and the broader ecological crisis is to me uh, a symptom of the deeper disease. And the deeper disease, which is that rift, that rift from nature, that seed of domination and of accumulation and of greed and of, of uh, the urge to dominate others through colonialism, through slavery, through uh, othering. The root is actually othering. It's that is something that artists can touch and that's what has to be healed and when we heal that what could come of it what does the what does the world on the other side of that look like and in, you know in simpler terms it's what does the world on the other side of a just transition look like and i'd really like to believe it doesn't look like exactly this but with solar <laughs> the first language that colonization sought to suppress which was that of indigenous peoples is where a lot of the answers are held. So welcome to another uh, episode of the Conscient Podcast. I'm in Vancouver with Anjali Apadurai, who is, we'll introduce herself in just a second, but I want to let uh, listeners know that we're at Trout Lake uh, Park in Vancouver, and uh, Anjali's about to experience a sound walk. <laughs> she hasn't done one before, but... Uh, so sound walking is basically when you, when you, uh, a way of, of being aware of your sonic environment when you're walking and experiencing different things. So uh, just, make, just making note of all that. So, Anjali, who are you? Uh, and uh, well, welcome to the program. And can you Thank talk you. a little bit about yourself, please? Yes. Hi, I'm Anjali Apadurai. I am a climate justice activist, an advocate, a communicator, um, I guess I like to think of myself as a as a a truth teller as well in this in this world of um, climate advocacy, um, and I you know I think many of us who work in this field are, and it's um you know it's tiring but it is I think my life's work. Nice. Well, the people can read more about you uh, in your background in the link, but. Um, let's start with with the, uh, the, the the big question about reality. <laughs> Yes, reality. Uh, the, the, the program, but also your thoughts about a reality and um, working through ecological grief. Uh, how did you feel when you listened to that episode and, and what kind of reactions did it bring to you? Well, the episode was really uh, meticulously done in terms of sort of unpacking this experience of reality, this moment as it is, uh, <clears throat> on a global level. And on a personal level for you. So I found it really uh, resonant in, in many places for myself. I, <clears throat> you know, I, I really resonate with, with this process that you're going through, working through the grief, but holding the hope in the same hand. And um, <laughs> there was one line that stood out to me. You said, there is hope, but it's hope wrapped in ugliness. Oh, that's actually Todd Dufresne who said okay, that. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that, that really resonated for me because that's, that's how I, that's what I'm moving through. That's where I'm at in my process right now. And um, it's constantly having to uh, grow bigger to be able to hold that nuance and to be able to, you know, hold the ugliness with the hope wrapped inside uh, so yeah I, th that was a really that was resonant for me but um, you know I also 
I, I like how you played, I, and you did this kind of through sound. I like how you played with the concept of time. And was that intentional through the sound, the soundscapes in the episode? Well, one always plays with time when one composes. But right. uh, I was trying to um, have a dialogue between the soundscape characters, because right. they're not really characters, but they sort of are, um, in relation to the content, uh, with, a si- with silence being also an important player, so that there's, there's moments of, of, of absence of sound, and then right. a sound emerges, and then it yeah. kind of complements or contrasts with the words. So it's, it's not yeah. a new thing at all, but it's, it's the way I chose to, to articulate it. Right. And then I, I, I went from reality some kind of definition of reality with a strong sort of zen lens mm-hmm. uh, and then just working my way through and letting all those wonderful thinkers uh, and quotes sort of bring the listener into their own idea of what reality might be and mm-hmm. what, whether they've been through, everybody's gone through some kind of grieving, but whether they've actually done ecological grieving yeah. is another thing. So, yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. Writer Britt Ray. When a small change in a complex system produces an enormous shift, that new pathway gets reinforced by positive feedback loops, which lock in all that change. That's why tipping points are irreversible. You can't go back to where you were before. A tipping point that flips non-linearly could be the thing that does us in. But it could also be the thing that allows us to heal our broken systems and better sustain ourselves. Well, for me, it, that was a really, that was a big piece because it, um, you know, you really reflected the the deep uncertainty that's inherent to eco grief, which which has to do with time. You talked about tipping points, and we don't know which one will set off which new reality, and um, and then you had this, you know, clanging of the clock, and then that clanging of the clock got distorted and it sped up and it slowed down, and so to me that was really like okay. We have actually no idea, so we're just swimming in the uncertainty, and we have to hold all these feelings within this sort of temporal uncertainty, which I guess is any kind of grief is that, but with climate, it's 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 extra <laughs> because you you simply don't know which tipping point we're heading towards. Public policy professor Eric Beinhocker. Humankind is in a race between two tipping points. The first is when the Earth's ecosystems and the life they contain tip into irreversible collapse due to climate change. The second is when the fight for climate action tips from being just one of many political concerns to becoming a mass social movement. I'm just going to stop you there and do have a little sound walking moment here. There's lots of birds song because it's April 2nd today. It's actually a good Friday. Yes, yeah. Um, 
beautiful bird song and mm-hmm. a little bit of, of traffic hum, but not too much. So it's uh, very kids pleasant. laughing. Yeah, yeah, very lively and joyful. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> people are happy, as happy as they can be. People are tired, but you know, enjoying the beginnings of spring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other things that stood out to me? Sure. You know, another... <laughs> I, I feel like I'm always bringing this into conversations about climate, but, but it is, you know, my reality as I understand it from this... Uh, from studying this crisis from so many angles. And, you know, I think you're very right when you talk about the the departure from unity with nature, the, the duality, the separation of mind and body, man and nature, and how from that springs this deep imbalance that I think manifests itself in climate change and in the patterns of greed and excess that drive climate change. And I think that's true for sure. I think it, you know, springs, you know, back to the, the, the enlightenment days. And that's a deep wound to heal. I also really have trouble using the word we when it comes to climate change. And I have real trouble resonating with the sort of extinction of the human species frame because, and I think we talked about this in an earlier conversation, but for me it's all happening on on a spectrum, like where there is no drop-off point at which our species goes extinct, but rather that extinction started a long time ago. And it started with the suppression of indigenous ways of knowing. It started with colonization and, you know, the selective exploitation of certain parts of the world and the disappearance of, of different ways of understanding the cosmos and the balance of man and nature and how society can live within nature. And what I'm really getting to is that the climate crisis to me isn't something that it's not a tragedy of the commons and I think that's often framed as if it is like oh you know we're all too greedy and self-involved to take care of our common planet and therefore we'll all suffer for it it's it's actually to me a very directed intentional thing and I don't think humanity can be placed on one plane when it comes to climate change And that's where the equity piece comes in, right? I mean, the crisis was consciously created by the the development of a certain economic system by a certain certain group of people and the spread of that system through means of direct exploitation, through means of slavery, through means of colonization, through means of uh, domination... And as certain people dominated other people, they also dominated nature or thought that they could dominate nature. And so to me, the the climate... I, I like to think about it in terms of climate violence, actually, rather than just climate change, which implies a sort of, like, passive thing that's happening. But climate change, to me, is being intentionally driven. Law professor Shalanda Baker. Will we redesign systems to replicate 
the current structures of power and control? Or will we reimagine our systems to benefit those who are so often left out of discussions regarding systems design? It's way less poetic to think about it that way, but that has its own galvanizing quality when we don't think of ourselves as regular people um, or as people who care as being um, what do you call it as being sort of like grouped in with those that are driving the crisis and I think we are and I think there's really clear distinctions here we live in the global north that's a totally different reality you know it's a totally different experience of climate change we are we live in a very late stage capitalist nation that's also a very different climate reality everything we do here in this so-called country is directly connected to the rest of the world in an intricate web of power of ecology of humanity of uh, trade and uh, exchange of goods and resources and everything is is so much more interconnected than the climate conversation sometimes allows it to be and um, so I find it very difficult to have you know a national conversation about climate change without taking into consideration how deeply our national activity is linked to the rest of the world and how you know what's our what's our positionality within the world even within Canada we have you know we, well we we all know how Canada was built and whose lands it was built on and how it was built on those lands and that's a microcosm of the rest of the world and so in that sense i really see it as this fractal this fractal web a web a spider web is fractal and it's 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 a similar thing so you know who's the we is what i struggle with essentially no i hear you and when covid hit there was a sense um that we could rebuild better and all those cliche mm -hmm. terms but there's good mm -hmm. intentions behind them because there's an awareness that that if we just rebuild what we had before, we're going to have the same problems. And mm -hmm. there isn't any one solution to a, a set of issues as large as, as the ones that we're now... Absolutely. And now we see the scope of it. I think we see it better because the notion of a just transition and, and those, yeah. those are, are sinking in. I'm, I'm hearing people talk about it. They say, of course, we have to address all kinds of inequities yes. to address the real issue behind the climate crisis, which is an ecological crisis, which might be a yes. civilization crisis. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not... <laughs> I, don't, mm -hmm. I don't know for sure, but I'm certainly learning. And it, and it has a lot to do with listening, you know. And there's a bike mm -hmm. coming by here, and it's going to be really pretty. Uh, those bicycles are a lot of fun. Uh, I never thought about how pretty that sound is. <laughs> I love bikes, <laughs> but that's another subject. <laughs> but thank you for raising all of that because the those issues I think is what we need to normalize as our conversation. You know mm -hmm. that vocabulary and those mm -hmm. uh, various—they're not new perspectives, but they're. I think there's a sense of receptiveness broadly now. To to to. I, are you feeling that, or are you, is it still a struggle to get people to talk about these things? Mm, I feel it's both. Depends on the room that you're in. I think maybe. If you're steeped in the conversation, you're, you start hearing that receptiveness more because you're just 
exposed to more perspectives, but I think at large, it's not really, it's not really part of the conversation here. Not yet. Well, then let's talk about how the arts can play a role, because I know that you're interested, you're a mm -hmm. musician and involved in, uh, in, in culture as well as environmental activism and other things. Um, how do you see the role of arts and culture? I mean, so far there has been a, an active role, but uh, I know you, you, you think there could be a larger role. So what are your thoughts about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think you were right in the reality podcast when you said, uh, the reality episode, when you said that it's, it's stories that... It was a quote from someone, I forget who it was. Yeah. Well, uh, there was a couple. One was Richard yeah. Wagamese, who's an indigenous yes. writer who talked a lot, yes. talks a lot, and a great storyteller. Yes, exactly. Writer Richard Wagamese. To use the act of breathing to shape air into sounds that take on the context of language, that lifts and transports those that hear it, takes them beyond what they think and know and feel, and empowers them to think and feel and know even more. We're storytellers, really. That's what we do. This, this intellectual exposition isn't really going to move a lot of people. And of course you can illuminate truths and you can frame things differently, but it's really stories that... Stories and sort of the way artists can take something like this tree and, and just cast a diff, cast, look at it from a different way and uh, cast it in a different light and... Uh, imagine it in a different context um, and I think art just has the power to to help us collectively imagine uh, collective futures um, you know different possibilities existing at the same time um, possibilities that exist outside of our day-to-day -day logic patterns our, our patterns of thinking you know art is a different language that can help us become more comfortable with the unknown um, even lean into the unknown uh, create together and uh, I think that the arts have a critical role to play in this artist David Haley we now need aesthetics to sensitize us to other ways of life need artists to sensitize us to the shape of things to come. It's not, it's not exactly the role that many people think, which is that, you know, people will create some environmental art about the beauty of, and it, this is all important, by the way, I'm not, I'm not knocking it, but it's not just art that highlights the beauty of what we want to preserve, which is the majority of the climate art that I see, you know, like... We want to preserve this, you know, protect our coast, protect these trees, protect the bear and the whale. And all of that is absolutely necessary. But also we want art that can help us imagine different way of being. Because ultimately, what we want 
yes, we want to build back better. And better doesn't mean keeping everything the way it is, but with renewable energy, yeah. reduced emissions, zero emissions, but the same power dynamics. That's actually not climate to me is the climate crisis and the broader ecological crisis is to me uh, a symptom of the deeper disease. And the deeper disease, which is that rift, that rift from nature, that seed of domination and of accumulation and of greed and of, of uh, the urge to dominate others through colonialism, through slavery, through uh, othering. The root is actually othering. It's, that is something that artists can touch and that's what has to be healed. And when we heal that, what could come of it? What does the, what does the world on the other side of that look like? And, in, you know, in simpler terms, it's what does the world on the other side of a just transition look like? And I'd really like to believe it doesn't look like exactly this, but with solar. <laughs> the first language that colonization sought to suppress, which was that of indigenous peoples, is where a lot of the answers are held. Activist Sheila Watt Cloutier. It's important to recognize how closely linked environment, health, economics, culture, and rights are in our society. The earth is a living, breathing entity, just the same as our bodies are. Our survival utterly depends on living in nature, not apart from it. Well, that makes sense to me uh, because I've experienced it. Um, I've seen artworks that have moved audiences and me in ways that I never would have expected and mm -hmm. probably couldn't have experienced in any other way because mm -hmm. it's not necessarily rational. It's not yeah. necessarily uh, something that we uh, can expect or anticipate. Um, but then the question is a question of amplitude and, um, and impact, right? Because the artists have always been concerned about social issues and that's not new. And mm -hmm. It's always been the case. And, they, and they've yeah. had, there have been moments of transformation through the arts in history. Um, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily transformation, but certainly uh, <laughs> impact. So, uh, you yes, know, absolutely. you and I and, and others are, are talking now about how to, to, to better coordinate and, and move forward uh, various actions by mm -hmm. the arts. And, and, they, and they want to do these things, but it, it's a question of, at the national level, international level, how to, how to make this happen in a way that's... that's uh, that's, that's genuine for the artist, yeah. right? That, that where they can authentically be who they are, they don't have to play another role, and, and, exactly. but, but that their impact can be amplified yeah. and, and, and heard and in a way uh, made, um, given some centrality. Mm -hmm. When I worked mm -hmm. at the council, we used, the, we used the, the term, you know, having a seat at the table. You know? Yes. With, with, and and you, a lot of people are excluded from the tables of the world. Yes. You know? How do you bring <coughs> inclusivity and... Um, and, and take the art for what it is, you know? It's, it's a powerful language that yes. does 
I don't need to convince you, but I, and I'm actually not even trying to convince people through this podcast that art is great because <laughs> either you do, either you, either you do, or either you don't. You know or you don't. But well, either you can learn more. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. your thoughts on on um, how things can, um, you know, what are some of the gaps or some of the areas where you think um, we could do more? To, to get yeah. the arts community involved yeah. in and around not just climate change because it's not a problem it's a yeah. like you say a large set of an issue part of a much larger set of issues yeah, yeah. well um, something that's important to me that I'm working on um, in my role at Sierra Club BC as well as um, the climate emergency unit is really believing that there can be a better relationship between artists who are who are who they are and should not be asked to be anything else or do any type of you know niche different art and and sort of um i guess what would you call the sector i guess like the change making social change sector social innovation social innovation social change and i think there's a relationship there that is really lacking i think so far it's been a sort of extractive relationship um Hmm. artists aren't valued the way they should be, they aren't paid the way they should be or resourced to just be who they are and do their art. And I think there's tremendous power in a better relationship there. I think when you have um, when you have a relationship of reciprocity, so it, for example, for myself at Sierra Club BC, we're an environmental nonprofit organization. Oh, dogs are so cute. Yes, and they are, and they are sonic as well. <laughs> Let's just stop for a second here. There's a lot of them running around. You know. But we won't eavesdrop on this on this person's conversation. Yeah, <laughs> with a recorder in it. Sierra Club BC. Yeah, so just using us as an example, you know, um, how can an environmental nonprofit organization have a more reciprocal uh, relationship with artists that actually enables artists to provide really the leadership that we need from them and to me that's a question of capacity building I think artists I think artists could you're right there's artists already really addressing the moment that we're in and that's tremendously important but it's also as you said in the episode artist Lance Garavi while individual works of art however genius may have value they won't do the trick What we need is for all art to be about climate change. We need all art to be climate art. We need it not to be a niche. Uh, It's not just a one issue that you only go and consume that art if you already know or, you know, if you already care about climate change. We need it to be something that's that's being reflected by the artists of our time in, in all mediums. And to me, that's a question of capacity building because, the, the, as you explored in the reality episode, it's not always possible to see reality or to experience it. It's a very curated reality depending on what you're exposed to and the truths that you've been able to learn and the perspectives that you've been able to listen to. And how would that, how would that influence the art? How would that influence the artists if there was good, proper... <clears throat> capacity building resources, um, good storytelling that artists can have access to that can help them understand better the moment that we're in. And <clears throat> in a way that doesn't 
just plunge everyone into grief, but in a way that reflects the reality in all its terrible complexity with its rays of hope. Well, that's, you know, and, the, and they're one of the people I recorded here in Vancouver is a guy named David Maggs who's written a piece about some of these issues and there's a growing momentum I would say of people of academics and activists and, but then how at the national level do do does, is that mobilized now maybe that's a funder responsibility or maybe that's an institutional responsibility but I think it's also uh, a question of uh, empowerment and, mm-hmm. and solidarity right a sense that we all are here, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, faced with a challenge that is unthinkably complex, and uh, the younger generations, like I mentioned to you, my daughter and my son, who are deeply concerned about their, their futures, and many, many young people yeah. are, are anxious about it. What do people who have some control and some power do that is impactful in the sense of? Addressing the issue as it as it as we face it now, you know, because mm-hmm. um, one of the things I, I struggled with in the program was how do you um, what what do you tackle? You mm-hmm. know, what do you do you, do you do a long term approach? Do you short term approach? Do do uh, and it depends on your skill mm-hmm. set and your interests and mm-hmm. your passion and all mm-hmm. that. But for artists, uh, they 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 tend to work long term, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they tend to to propose a vision of the world, and so mm-hmm. we will need some long term thinking as well yeah. as the short term. Uh, change all that combined, so that it's like a mosaic. You know, mm-hmm. you get all these different pieces that come yeah. together. Well, I think it's important to give artists uh, a sense of the direction, the north star. Where are we moving to? What is the outcome of the climate crisis? And maybe that's something I should have led with because that's the big question for me in our collective discourse. What is solving the climate crisis what does that even mean um you know there's there's ways we could do it now that would be you know shutting down all emissions and then what would we be left with who would lose first from that equation um and then there's this question of justice what is just what's a just way to decarbonize and that's the that's the conversation at a global level right at at, at an international level you know for a lot of smaller developing countries that have been you know maybe they've they've experienced hundreds of years of colonialism so their economies are very uh, weak or very dependent um, and so they need time to stabilize themselves and to give their people quality of life and so what does it mean who has to reduce emissions first who's uh, who uh, upon who is the onus to lead the way so all of these questions point to justice and what does what does it look like within Canada you know if we have people who are already extremely made vulnerable by this by this system what does climate justice look like for them um, and and so I think this is where you need the activists who have their who have that deep sense of justice in their hearts that they're working towards and and you need you need them hand in hand with the artists, is what I feel. Well, let's do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> because in a way, um, uh, it's it's already happened uh, in bits and pieces, um, and um, <clears throat> so we'll come back to that. I, I wanted to okay. to end with um, 
I come back, I mean, in a, maybe in another episode, <laughs> because this is a, an ongoing conversation. Um, I wanted to end just a bit with um, this notion of privilege, because yeah. I, that's been a real eye-opener for me. I mean, I've always been somewhat aware of privilege, but it really, uh, in a strange way, I was recording the reality program, and I started listening to my voice, and I thought, it sounds like a privileged voice. That's huh. me. It, you know, it sounded a little pretentious and a little, I called it ecological mansplaining, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I, you know, a little bit, but, but enough to, to kind of wake me up to the whole, and so I started reading and thinking and talking to people, and so the, I think that's something that uh, those who have privilege, you know, in different ways, because mm. there's many tips, that they really have to be aware and, and change the way that they do things and the way mm. that they spend money and, and all, all yeah. everything and it's not that hard to do you just the awareness kind of takes you into into action but I don't know any thoughts on, on the, the notion of privilege oh, and yeah. how that's an issue this really meshes with what I was talking about I sort of to circle back to the beginning uh, of the conversation we were talking about who's the we and privilege is the central question to that to that um, and uh, looking at the issue as this multi-layered thing and looking at it as a spectrum of history where what have the power dynamics been in say you can take a slice of history you can say the last 500 years um, what were the advantages you know privilege can go back as far as you want it to go back right and of course it's so nuanced you know it's not every white guy has this much privilege but you do have a privilege that goes back hundreds of years um, and I think one aspect of privilege a lot of people leave out is this this economic aspect right of of, of class and uh, resources and that to me is you know it's not often talked about in the climate conversation but it's a huge piece of it because when we talk about the extinction of our species this extinction doesn't happen overnight it happens in a spectrum who are the last ones standing it's the those with the most resources uh, who are the first ones to go it's those with the least the most disenfranchised so I don't think you can talk about climate without talking about privilege ultimately and I think it's on each of us to unpack that for ourselves and um, and and to to bring that into the conversation because I see a lot of climate discourse that is very you know it's happening on this level it's it's really this is my beef with the individual responsibility piece and we talked a little bit about this how it's very important to be a conscious consumer and to to reduce your individual footprint and to be aware be aware of yourself and be responsible in that way but to me that's kind more of a baseline it's a baseline and it's to me that's less of a question of impact and more of a question of of solidarity yeah. um, and understanding where we're at in this moment and on the other hand to me that can quickly that can quickly devolve into a question of privilege as well right if we make if we make the solutions about behavioral change isn't that a question of ability and resources and privilege at the end of the day as well? And and I'll just leave with one more thought. <laughs> um, there's a framing 
There's a lot of framings about how to divide up in an equitable way the remaining emissions, the sort of carbon budget of the world. So carbon budget is a framing in and of itself. And then there's this other framing that floats around around the right to atmospheric space and um, how if you look at atmospheric space as a human right and if you divide up how much we have left in the world, uh, how many people have way more than what would be their fair share? How many people have way less? And that's a deep question of privilege as well. Talking about the global north, I mean, that really plays into our global privilege. Well, we can work with all of that. Uh, some of it, like you say, artists might not be as well informed as, as they could, and we will do what we can to point them to good quality information, like in, in, in circles mm -hmm. of conversation. Absolutely. Uh, without, you know, saying that anybody's right or wrong, but there is, there is knowledge out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that we yeah. can work from in history and, and stories, people's experiences, right? What they yes. actually experience is valuable. So we're going to wrap this up. We've done, we've walked all around <laughs> the Trout Lake lake, oh, yeah. literally. Yeah. And we've had some nice uh, sound experiences that we didn't, like all the crows, they came in different density. And mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I hope you enjoyed the, the conversation. I certainly did and, oh, and yes, the sound likewise. one. But I always ask the guests at the end, is there anything else that we missed <laughs> <laughs> that, that you would like to say? You know, I feel like we've been all over the place in this conversation and... Um, you know, I don't think so. I think I think maybe just leaving with a reiteration of, you know, something that we both have in common, which is just really hoping, uh, really hoping that the arts can take on more leadership role in this next era, in this next phase, in these critical next five to ten years. And I'm going to be doing everything in my power to make it so. Um, and I, you know, I really hope that we're able to change sort of the role of the arts going forward, making it less of artists being used to send a message, but rather placing artists in the lead to help us see the world differently. Yeah. <laughs> There's two kids in that tree. <laughs> well, maybe we'll go to the sound of the tree. We'll end with this. this. <laughs> just one of my favorite sounds is the sound of children uh, yeah. playing and just it, it's like pure joy, you know? Absolutely, yeah. And there's a bit of tennis over there. Mm -hmm. So much pent up joy, these poor children have been inside all winter. It's been a hard time. <laughs>